quite a reading, isn't it? As I said in the introduction, it's likely that the author of Matthew's Gospel drew together whole piles of things that Jesus had said to his disciples and put them in this one section, the instructions of the disciples that we had last week, if you were using the lectionary text, and we have it next week. But what's the purpose of it? We have to be reminded, because it's right at the beginning, where Jesus says, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the purpose of all of these uh, instructions and all of this uh, really horrible stuff that's in there as well. But what does that mean? I mean, we've heard this over and over again. If you've been in church for more than a couple of months, you've heard about the word good news and you've heard kingdom of heaven. But to proclaim something is to make a formal announcement. It's not just to have a chat. It's to make a formal announcement. It's not to suggest or invite a possibility. It's to state a fact in the world. The earth revolves around the sun is a proclamation of a fact. So what's being proclaimed? What is the proclamation of the fact? Well, the text says it's good news, which we know to be the Greek word euangelion, which scholars think that this was the word that was first used whenever a Roman official turned up in your town to tell you the good news of what the the empire was going to do next. And of course it was good news if you happened to run the Roman Empire, Not necessarily good news if you happen to be in a colonised property of the Roman Empire like Palestine was in the time of Jesus. So this is the proclamation of an official announcement. The sort of thing that Rome would say, here Jesus is saying, What is the official announcement that's being announced and proclaimed? It's the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which is strange when you think about it because haven't we been taught that we're supposed to tell people that God loves them or that Jesus came to save you or that you should repent? The disciples were told, these 12, these named disciples, were told to go out and proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's not the sort of thing we usually say. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Why do we use the word kingdom here? Why does Jesus use that word? Because a kingdom is the way you run the world. It's a system of government. We're in a kingdom again now uh, with a new king. A republic is a different way of running the world, but it's about the whole of the structure of how things are done. So the disciples are to proclaim in a formal way an announcement of a fact of the world, and the fact is there's a new government. That's what's being proclaimed. A new way of doing the world. And what is the way of doing the world? It's the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is... There was a a different understanding of cosmology in the first century, as you can imagine, from the 21st century. They believed the world was split into three, physically, like a layer cake. The heavens were up there where the gods were, we're in the middle, and then there's the evil that's below the ground. 
We don't have that view of, the cos- of cosmology. We have a different view of the universe. And our view of God is the idea, not that God is a being, but God is the beingness of all the world. God is the ground of all being, is the way one theologian described it some years ago. That we and everything that is, is made of the same stuff as God. We have the DNA of God. Paul keeps talking about us as the children of God. And whether you like it or not, you have the DNA of your parents. You look like they do, or you look like they did. Which might be good. I mean, for my kids, of course, it's going to be great news. Uh, but for rest, you know, we don't know, do we? But we have the DNA of God. That's the story we tell. This is announcing an official fact that there's a new government in the world and it's the government of the being of everything, the DNA of the world. We know that we're made out of stardust. That's something that cosmology has taught us in the last 30 years. So what does this new world look like? Well, that's what the rest of the stuff is about in this chapter. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. Well, what are we going to do with that? That's not our experience. Because what is being said here is that this is the structure of the new world that Jesus is talking about. It's the reality of things. We're not experiencing it all the time. It's come near, but we don't experience it in in the same sense that we would like to. But this is speaking to the true structure of the world, if you like, the underlying architecture of what the world is, and that is wholeness. The purpose of the world is to be whole and one. We know that experience within ourselves. When we have a moment when it all sort of comes together, and it's always very brief, isn't it? Those moments, perhaps, when you're so enmeshed in what you're doing that you lose track of time because the book that you're involved in or the project that you're doing or the relationship you're engaged in is so all-encompassing that for a moment you feel like one whole human being. Whereas if you're like me, the rest of the time, you're scattered all over the place. Half your brain is there, what you should have done. Half your brain is there, what you've got to do this afternoon. It's exhausting being a human being. But every now and then, you experience wholeness. That's the purpose. That's the meaning of the universe. That's why it talks about the curing of every disease and every sickness. It's about wholeness. This is the assumption that Jesus lived in and with. He actually believed that when, we, when he read, as, he, as a good Jew he would have done, the first chapter of Genesis, when God said it was good, Jesus worked from that assumption that the world is good. And it, why is it good? Because it is radiating the energy of God. It is the DNA of God. That's why he was known as a drunk to some of his contemporaries. Because he believed the world was good. And that what, you, what do you do when you've got something that's good? You celebrate. And Jesus did a lot of that. So much so that he got a reputation as a drunk. There's a little bit later on in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where people come to him to question what's going on. And they say to him, We know that you show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Well, that's crazy. 
a whole structural of, of the world is built on showing partiality, figuring out who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't, who's above who, who's smarter than who, who's richer than who, who's better looking than who. We know that you don't show partiality. We, show, we know that you show deference to no one. Well, that's crazy. We can't run the world like that, but that's the assumption Jesus is working from. He's living in a different reality. He's experiencing a different meaning of the world. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says to his disciples, something that I'm not planning to do because it's a bit of a cold day, take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics. I've got three layers on and I'm still chilly. Don't take sandals or a staff. These are, remember, these are specific instructions to 12 named individuals in the first century. So we've got to ask, what does this possibly mean for us? I think what it's saying is, well, this is how we are in the world when we tell the truth. The truth is, we arrive in the world naked and vulnerable. And we go out pretty much the same way and in between not much changes. We spend our lives trying to cover up our nakedness. We don't want people to see what we're truly like, so we cover it up. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's what the story, one of the meanings of that story. They covered up their nakedness. They covered up the reality of who they were. We spend our lives trying to shore up our vulnerabilities with our education, with our money, with the way we act, with the way we dress. We take out insurance for all kinds of things. We harden ourselves in relationships because if we're too vulnerable, people get in and hurt us. We don't want anybody to know that we're naked and vulnerable. But we all are. So we're hiding it from each other. We're not living in wholeness. That's why Jesus says three times in this chapter, don't be afraid. Because we are afraid. We're afraid that we might accidentally expose who we are. People might accidentally find out how little we really know. How clueless we, we so often are. That's why there's so much violence in this text. Because if we want to, if, if we think we might expose ourselves, we retreat and we build up walls against each other. If we think somebody else might expose us, we get angry and we fight them. That's why there's so much in this text about brother against brother and son killing father and mother and daughter-in-laws. And it's because those people who get closest to us they know our vulnerabilities. And if they want to attack us, and sometimes we do that to each other, they know best how to do it in a way a stranger never could. And all our stories, all of our stories are about how we avoid the truth of who we are. If you could go from Shakespeare to succession, they're all about how we avoid the truth of who we are. The good news is that the world is actually built on wholeness 
and that you and I are already whole, made in the DNA of God. That's the good news. Even if we ignore it and don't live it, it's just still true. Because the language of this new world is truth. Jesus says over and over again in Matthew's Gospel, truly I tell you. More than 30 times he says that before he begins to say something. But we, we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear the truth. No wonder Jesus was persecuted. No wonder he was taken down. You can't handle the truth. Remember that from the 1992 film, A Few Good Men? You can't handle it. Of course we can't. We don't want to. We prefer to avoid it. I read recently that 50% of us don't have a will. Even though 100% of us are going to die, and we've usually got something we would like to leave, either stuff or ideas or food, but 50% of us haven't managed to have the courage to face our own death, whether it's a week from now, and who knows, or 50 years, who knows. But 50% of us apparently don't have a will. Jesus says in this text, nothing that is covered will not be uncovered, and nothing secret will, become, will not become known. Everything will come out. The truth will be there. That's the story of the kingdom of heaven. That's the story of the true world of God. And there's lots more in this text that we could look at. Let's just finish with this bit. Jesus says those who find their life will lose it. Those who find it, those who have their life sorted out, those who've got it all organised, who manage to avoid the truth, who are the 50% who don't have a will, who would prefer to talk about anything other than the fact that one day we won't be here. One day we'll have disappeared and all the things that we think are important will be gone. Preferring to avoid that, we control life. We tell a story that we can manage it. We decide who comes to this country and how they get here, as our recent Prime Minister once said. We will control it because we're frightened about anything else. We will tell a story about First Nations Australians. Well, they weren't so much dispossessed as, well, we just moved in with them. We don't have the courage to tell the truth that our ancestors, those of us who were Anglo-Saxons, came in and dispossessed the First Nations people and we're continuing to do so. We prefer not to tell that truth. We prefer to find our own version of the world. But what happens? We lose who we are because we're unwilling to tell the truth and be open. But those who lose their life, for my sake, will find it. Those who let it go, those who recognise the reality of the world in which we live, which is that it's the good whole world of God, and that we won't be here for very long, but that we live the moment that we have in the moment of truth. That's the experience of the kingdom of heaven. One last thing. When my mum 
was in the last year of her life. She had cancer and knew she was dying. We managed to persuade her to take the Royal Dalton cup and, and saucer sets that she had in her cupboard that were for best, and I don't remember her ever using them when I was a kid living at home. We said, Mum, you're dying. Let's get them out and have a party. They're for best. Now let's do it now. This is, the, this is the life we're living now. So we got them out and we had a special party. And then she used them all the time. Until in the last couple of months of her life, she chose which ones to give to which of her grandchildren. And each of them, these are now, they're kind of up on the shelf when I go to see my children, uh, they're, like, um, they're like special little altars almost because they were given to them by their grandmother because she lived the moment she was living in. It took us a while to persuade them because this, this is special stuff. You don't use it every day. But this is the life we have. This is the life we've been given. It, this is the goodness of the world that we've got. Let's live it. Let's live in this moment. Oh. <clears throat> Way too long, we have to stop. Proclaim the good news.